0: Corporate fraud works best in the shadows, behind corporate walls. How does the government bring these wrongdoers to justice? Whistleblowers. These are the stories of those who risk their careers to shine a light on allegations of fraud. Today, on Fraud in America.
1: On today's episode of Fraud in America, we are heading up to Boston, Massachusetts to visit with longtime keytam attorney Tom Green. Tom Green is an attorney who set the path for off-label marketing almost 30 years ago and recently brought home the most money ever recovered in a non-intervene keytam action. We'll do all of that on today's episode of fraud in America. I'm glad that we're sitting down today. So I I went back and looked over, you know, the people that we've talked to over time. Um, You know, Senator Grassley and John Phillips and Joyce Branda, you know, the people that really are kind of the the trailblazers for our bar Mm -hmm. and, and our legal world. You are absolutely there, right? You're on you're the, the Mount Rushmore. You're the, the Roger Federer of, of our bar, right? So I really appreciate you yeah. taking time. Thank me. you, Jim. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So there's a lot of things I want to talk to you about over your right. 30 plus years in this bar. Um, but I want to go back. Um, sure. Where were you raised? Where did it start? And why did you become a lawyer?
0: I was raised here in Massachusetts, small town, Westboro, Massachusetts. I was a political science major in college mm-hmm. um, and took constitutional law, the judicial process, the legislative process, and uh, introduction to business law. And I took those courses because I'm pretty sure I wanted to go to law school. Yeah, at Boston uh, College. Uh, yeah, yep, I went BC yep, undergrad. Yep, yep, and uh, what I was interested in um, was courtroom work, trial work. Mm-hmm. And when I, when I went to law school, you, know, you take all the courses, mandatory courses, uh, but constitutional law interested me again, and uh, yeah. so I took, you know, federal courts, and I think it was con law too, yeah. um, and of course on the First Amendment. And then, uh, upon graduation, um, the only place I applied for a job was the uh, district attorney's office because I thought I'd mm-hmm. get in a courtroom quickly.
1: Yeah. here in Boston.
0: Uh, no, it was. Uh, it's in Barnstable County, so we covered Barnstable, Duke, uh, and Nantucket counties, Cape Cod, and the islands. Okay, and yeah. uh, I, I worked there my second summer uh, after law school, and they that third year I did a clinic, and I was able to get down to uh, second semester down to the DA's office. In mm. some of the cases that I had tried that summer in the district court, uh, you know, as as a as a student there were appeals to a 12-man jury trial in Superior Court in the misdemeanor session. Yeah. So two of my convictions were appealed, and the DA let me come down and, oh, wow. and uh, try those cases, 12-man jury trials, each one of them. So this is my third year, uh, second semester. As a third year law student. As a were, third year wow. law student. Yeah, um, yeah. And you, under the rules, you do it under the supervision of the, the DA, which mm-hmm. means an assistant district attorney. and. Uh, my my first of the two trials, there was an assistant DA sitting next to me, and uh, you know they just sit there. You make the opening and, and the closing, and put, put the witnesses on in between. The second trial I did, which might have been a month later, um, no, no assistant DA showed up, nope. and the judge said, "We've got to get this going," and so I got convictions in both, yeah, <laughs> both trials, yeah. but. Uh, so that was kind of my my interest, and I spent two years in the DA's office, and then I opened my own office in Boston. And wow! After two years at the DA's, you yeah. immediately oh, yeah hung I, the shingle, yeah, yeah. I came came to Boston and yeah. opened my own office, and that was in December of 1979. Yeah, and again, doing just trial work, representing plaintiffs. Okay. Um, and. Most of my practice were injury cases, although we did do some commercial cases uh, representing plaintiffs. And that's how the practice started and, and developed. And I, I did my first false climax case, I think it was in 1993. Wow. And uh, I'm trying to remember how I stumbled across it because I'd never heard of it yeah. un- until then. That was the Ferguson case, mm. uh, which had to do with the sale of uh, a satellite communication system mm-hmm. to the army right. uh, to be used in uh, desert operations. Mm-hmm. And the relator in that case was a, a graduate of West Point who worked for this company as an engineer. Mm-hmm. And the, um, the system wasn't meeting specs. Mm-hmm. And one spec was that it operate in high heat and they were getting reports it's back in a desert yeah, yeah from yeah. the from the desert that it yeah. wasn't, and they were putting chunks of ice uh on the equipment uh and he kept writing them up, and they they fired him they literally had guards that scored them out uh, he he had uh, saved a lot of the documents, and so that was my first false climax case um and I remember that at maine justice uh I think. I think it was, it was Dennis Phillips mm-hmm. uh, who, at DOJ who, who, who worked on that case. Mm. And it ended up in a favorable resolution when there was a cash payment and a recall and rewarranty, recall, repair, rewarranty of the equipment. Mm. And my client had a wrongful termination claim that was successfully resolved. So that was my introduction to yeah. um, the False Claims Act.
1: So at, at this time, you know, the False Claims Act isn't well known. Right? You're one of the early people to, to file under the, the Modern False Claims Act. How did that come to your attention? Do you remember how you thought of, you know, this is a good application of this False Claims Act?
0: I read an article, and I'm trying to date it, but I, I believe it was in Trial Magazine. So that was ATLA. Okay, and yeah. I think that's where I read about it. Um, and I, I had never heard about it, and that yeah. caused me to do a little research. Mm-hmm. Um, and at some point, well, my my next case was Franklin, yes. fi- filed in 1996. So sometime between '93 and '96, and, and maybe it was a bit after that. That, whenever this article was, mm-hmm. it, it it brought me to John Phillips, and I had a couple of ca- calls with John Phillips about off-label promotion and whether it was reimbursable. Mm-hmm. Uh, because my reading of the the statute was was not, and uh, um, but I, I didn't disclose you know mm-hmm. who the defendant was or anything. And, yeah. uh, but John was helpful um, and was interested in in the theory. Hmm. So somewhere between either just prior to Ferguson or right right around '96, I came across yeah. that article. Uh, but you are right. There wasn't much out there yeah. about the False Claims Act. So Franklin was filed in August of 1996. So let's yeah. let's
1: talk about Franklin. Um, in, in preparing for this, I went back and read a lot of the, the opinions that came out of that case. Uh, uh, for those who don't know, you know this case was filed in 1996. David Franklin uh, was working at Warner Lambert at the time. He was a, a medical liaison, yes, right? Yeah. And. Uh, uh, he, was he fired? Is that how yeah. he came? A lot of them start this way, right? Yeah. Someone's fired and they call you.
0: He had yeah. a PhD and he was yeah. interested in medicine. Um, and you are right, he, he, um, he was employed as a medical liaison. And he only lasted there about four months. Mm. But as he said to me, medical liaison was really just a glorified sales yes. rep. Yes. Uh, It happens in in these cases. We may be experts uh, in certain fields as attorneys, but the relators are experts in the field they work. And so he had to educate me about uh, pharmaceutical marketing and what was permissible and not permissible, Mm -hmm. off-label marketing and off-label use. Uh, Mm -hmm. And and so he did all that. And he had some really compelling documents. August of 1996, we filed that.
1: So if we go back um, you know, at the time, this application of the False Claims Act to reach off-label marketing uh, was a novel theory of liability at the time. Um, what made you think this could be used in that way? You know, like, those cases weren't there. You were the first to file those cases.
0: Well, if, if you read the statute, it, it, it basically said—I'm paraphrasing now—but Medicare and Medicaid would pay for uh, covered um, covered drugs. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, and they were defined as uh, drugs that are prescribed for an FDA use, or drugs that are supported by the uh, statutory uh, statutory compendia. Mm-hmm. And at that time, there was only there was a there was a single one um, compendium, and mm-hmm. uh, then a couple others were added. And I kept reading it and reading it and. Yeah. It said, and off label marketing was, is not permitted by the FDA. It wasn't then mm-hmm. isn't now, and uh, so I, I ended up calling I had multiple conversations with people from CMS yeah. um, and one woman there was very helpful, and I kept reading her the language, and I said, "You know, mm-hmm. this is the way I'm interpreting it, but there's no case law." And she said, "Well, that's the way we read it too and there was an attorney um, at, at CMS. Um, and they're careful, obviously, of what, what they can mm-hmm, say. Mm-hmm. But there was, uh, there was one attorney there I talked to initially a number of times and who was pretty helpful. I, I just want to see, am I misreading this? Is, it, is there some yeah. law somewhere that I can't find? And uh, So we went with it, that off-label promotion, is improper it's against fda uh, regulations and uh, cms won't pay for uh, drugs that are prescribed for an off-label use Mm -hmm. they pay for covered out i think it's covered outpatient no not outpatient i think it's just covered drugs i think Mm -hmm. is the the language in the statute i'd have to go back and look at it spend some time Mm -hmm. Uh, and to me that seemed like a viable theory that they are They've got this scheme where they're marketing to doctors nationwide uh, and trying to grow um, these off-label uses for a drug that was uh, approved initially. It was approved by the FDA as adjunctive therapy for seizures at 1,800 milligrams and only for adults, not for children. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so they were engaged in a campaign marketing it for doses greater than 1,800 milligrams, which was off-label marketing it for children, which was not in the patient class that the FDA had approved. That would be off-label. And then marketing it for migraine, neuropathic pain, restless leg syndrome, Mm. uh, nociceptive pain, uh, none of which had been uh, approved by the FDA. Uh, What's more is for... A couple of these indications, they had conducted a clinical trial and they had some positive results, but they also had negative results. And in the marketing, mm. they never disclosed the negative results. They they touted the uh, the positive clinical trial or the positive case report, but they didn't mention the negative case report. Uh, so it's clearly, um, you know, mis- misleading marketing, a fraudulent marketing. But the off-label marketing, that's what the basis of, of the false claim was, yeah. because it was not reimbursable uh, under the statute. Uh, the, the off-label indications weren't. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and under the, the False Claims Act, it's the, the marketing cause to be presented a false claim to the government, and the, the false claim being this claim for a, a, an off-label use, a use that wasn't approved by the government
0: yeah, so um, as you know, you know when a physician writes a prescription, he doesn't put on the prescription what, what the indication is. Yeah. he just writes the script for Neurontin. Mm-hmm. Um but the company had a lot of internal documents that showed about pie, ch- pie charts that showed different percentages uh, uh, different indications that the drug was being used for, um, unapproved ind- indications, mm-hmm. and they David Franklin. Um, uh, experience that he, he was being instructed to to market it and to push for these unapproved indications. So we we had a we had some good documentation to start start off with. But then when we get into discovery, mm-hmm. and they had to produce all all of the documents. And back in those days, you know, the, it was just banker boxes, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, and you were going through them serially. Uh, mm-hmm. OCR was uh, really not that reliable. Um, But you could pick up a box, uh, uh, a banker's box, of documents. And it was almost every page was a document that evidenced uh, the strategy of off-label marketing Mm. and different tactics um, that they employed to promote the off-label uses. So it was a treasure trove. uh, Of documents. Um, and there was a whole battle in that case uh, over the protective order uh, and, and trying to agree to terms on that before they were produced the documents. Mm.
1: These were powerful drugs, epilepsy drugs, and the market for pediatric use and dosages that weren't approved. What bothered David the most about what he was doing I, I being think, asked to do? Yeah. Uh,
0: the lack of uh, clinical evidence that would support uh, these off-level indications. He just didn't think um, it was proper. And I I do recall when he was initially hired, they had a sales training uh, They brought everybody out. I I think it was to Chicago. And all the reps and medical liaisons were in one room. And he said that um, there were people from compliance and uh, attorneys up conducting the education, and one session they had a a, a picture of um, Commissioner um, FDA Commissioner uh, David Kessler, mm. and they they had it up. Um, I think it was on a, a PowerPoint slide, and they were uh, making uh, critical remarks about him, wow. and uh, uh, so. The, the, the point was that he was instructed by compliance and, and, and by these attorneys not to put anything in writing. Be careful of uh, what you put down. And, and they had a slide up that uh, like of a notepad that said at the top of it, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, just to illustrate that if you wrote something that was incriminating, uh, that someday, someday it might become an, an exhibit at trial. Which it, it did in this case, mm-hmm. and uh, David did testify um, in a in a related uh, case had, um, in U.S. District Court here in Boston in a RICO trial we had against Pfizer mm-hmm. over false and misleading marketing of uh, of now, That was follow-on litigation mm-hmm. after the FCA uh, case resolved.
1: Yeah, so the government looked at the evidence. You had a relator's meeting. David came in and talked about, you know, everything. And then in 1999, the government declined. Um, What was the thought process at that time about whether to go forward, and and why did you decide to go forward with the case?
0: So, uh, as I recall, it was Judge Sarris was the the judge in in the Franklin case, and she had granted many extensions of the seal. And in in December of 1999, the government wanted another extension, and she said, "No, that's it." Ah, and they said, uh, "Well, we're not we're not going to intervene." I've forgotten now whether they said we're not going to intervene at this time. And so we we took up the prosecution of the case, and that's when um, discovery really started. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that would have been December '99, January 2000. And I think the court limited us to 15 depositions. So we went around the country, took depositions, and we had a, a group of experts. We survived the initial motion to dismiss. Um, then, then discovery got underway, and then there was a uh, there was a motion for summary judgment. Um, I I think it was, I think it was in, uh, I think the decision came down in August of 2003, as I'm recalling. Uh, and, as I say, we survived, we got a favorable decision on the motion to dismiss, but then the court went even further uh, in the motion for summary judgment, holding that the, the, the marketing, the off-label marketing, that's causing um, prescriptions to be written and the government programs to pay for it, for these off-label indications, that that's false. That results in a false claim. Okay, so you didn't you didn't have to prove there was not a double falsity. You yes. didn't have to prove a false statement or record yes. to get uh, the false claim. Um, and and Pfizer was making that argument, as I recall, that. But that that's the the section second section. You know, using a, a false statement or a false record to get a, a false claim paid. The. the the first section is causing, uh, presenting or causing to be presented a false claim, and the court found the false claim here was the off-label, you know, Mm -hmm. reimbursement for an off-label indication.
1: So Judge Sarris' 2003 opinion has been cited many, many times by subsequent cases, right? Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier, if we go back for one second, so the government in 1999 said, we're not intervening at this time, or you know, we need more time, not giving us more yeah. time. Do you feel like if Judge Sears had kept granting extensions, they, they would have eventually intervened, or do you don't have a sense of where they were on that?
0: I, I'm not sure. There, there was a grand jury that was convened in the case, yeah. um, and David testified before the grand jury um, so there was the, the criminal side was conducting that. Um, and of course, that's walled off, so uh, mm-hmm. we don't know much about that. But the assistant U.S. attorney I was dealing with in Boston, um, I, I don't know whether... Uh, they didn't have the, the 50 or however many there were, 50 or 75 boxes of documents. They didn't have that, that evidence. Yes. Uh, and, and of course, as you know, the... the uh, the government will share, sometimes, some of what they've learned in an investigation. But they just don't turn over their file to you. Um, mm-hmm. Unless, of course, uh, the defendant serves a subpoena on them once the case is going forward and and asks for the file mm-hmm. uh, and the court orders it, then then we get it, mm-hmm. which happened in Biogen. I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> but in Franklin, no. So I, I don't have a sense of of whether they would have ultimately intervened in the case. Uh, When we conducted discovery, I regularly sent them um, updates, memos, and uh, I I think I probably labeled them supplemental disclosures uh, in in memos, summarizing depositions and key documents and producing them uh, to the government um, all along the way. But there was never, uh, never a call to say, "Gee, this is this is pretty interesting. We'd like to intervene." Right. Um, they they did have the criminal investigation underway, and and ultimately in the case, Warner Lambert, who had purchased Park Davis, and mm-hmm. Pfizer purchased Warner Lambert, but Warner Lambert pled to uh, uh, an information, mm-hmm. and basically the the facts that were set forth in the information were the facts that we. Uh, discovered during the course of discovery and provided to the government.
1: So the first False Claims Act settlement I ever summarized and read was actually this case. Oh, was it? In May of 2023 when this, uh, or May of 2004 when this case was announced. uh, I went back and looked, that was the very first settlement settlement i ever read, so it's (laughs) kind of interesting, full circle. But $430 million civil and criminal.
0: Yep, civil and criminal. Uh, There was actually some Additional monies paid to the state, um, the state AG's uh, consumer protection divisions, as I recall, a group of them had gotten together, uh, and there was a small number that's not included in that four hundred and thirty, uh, and I think it might have been ten or twenty million that yeah. were, were paid to state AGs uh, for, for educational um, efforts, uh, but yeah it was it was a long battle and, um, and it sort of set the course i guess for some other successful cases well, to it, come it, along and i wish i wish i had some dividends uh you know well i i, I uh, think we
1: all owe you yeah. including me yeah. uh, a percent of every off-label yeah. marketing case that settled after that by the way i added it up this morning almost 14 billion 14 billion 14 billion, 14 billion yeah. in off-label marketing yeah. settlements yeah. since this case settled in may of 2004. Right. Uh, i printed them out and yours yeah. is the very first one right. so then. The train leaves. <laughs> <but> many, many <laughs> right. cases after that. Um, what is your thought about that? The legacy of this case, in all the cases, and the industry that's changed. I mean, the the blatant off-label marketing that happened in the 1990s. You don't you don't hear about that anymore? Right?
0: It, it, it's uh, not as prevalent. Yeah. Um, we occasionally come across some of it, um, but it's it's not as prevalent and. I I think, um, as you say, all these cases that totaled 14 billion dollars sent a message to the industry, um, and I think that's good. Uh, This is this was a bad practice, you know, off-label marketing. I mean, it's what we have the FDA for, you know, to determine whether you know go through the process, file an NDA, uh, have the FDA evaluate your evidence, see if the drug is safe and effective. That's what the FDA is there for. And when you have the companies trying to do an end run around that mm-hmm. and, and market for these off-level uses, that ha- safety hasn't been established, efficacy hasn't been established, and people can get harmed. Um, I mean, there was no evidence to be marketing Neurontin uh, as being safe and effective at doses over 1,800 uh, or for a pediatric population. Uh, so I, I think a lot of good has been accomplished and uh, I, I think the industry has changed with regard to um, off label promotion they're, they're much more careful about it as they should be.
1: yeah I think you know the dollars are you uh, know I mean, if you write out 14 billion there's a lot of zeros there yeah. but the lives saved without it out you know some of these drugs were used for pediatric populations and not necessarily this case but subsequent cases yeah. we got those what would have happened but for yeah. off-label marketing yeah. cases. Um, try not to think about it, right? The impact of these cases yeah. really is remarkable. So, it, it, But it didn't end there. You then had a RICO case right, involving Narotan. Could you talk about that?
0: So um, yeah, I think, I think it settled in 2004. And then I was approached uh, very soon after, uh, within a couple of months, as I recall, uh, and, and I got involved in representing well there were, were there two classes, two proposed classes, uh, consumers and uh, third party uh, health, health insurers uh, and, and again, uh, it was the false and misleading marketing yeah. uh, of the drug Neurontin uh, that that caused uh, claims to be presented that were reimbursed by c- these commercial insurance companies so no, no longer healthcare programs mm-hmm. and uh, we proceeded under a RiCO statute which is a trouble damage statute and the predicate acts were you know mail or wire fraud so if you use you know the mail or wire and you make um, misleading and, and false misrepresentations there can be liability mm-hmm. uh, and so I chaired the steering committee uh, in that litigation, and we were before Judge Sarris. And Judge Sarris wanted a bellwether trial, and she selected uh, Kaiser Health. And so I and uh, a couple other l- lawyers uh, tried that case, and I, I think it was about a five-week trial. Um, there was no offer in that case. and. Uh, we had great experts, mm. a great team of experts. that The court even remarked about that. Uh, and the jury came back with a $47 million verdict. And Singles. It, yeah, so, yeah yep. and, and then it was troubled <laughs> to, to about $142 okay. million. Yeah. And Pfizer appealed that uh, to the First Circuit. And about that same time, we, we had moved for uh, class certification, not once, not twice, but three times. <laughs> Um, each time it was denied, and so we appe- appealed that. And so the, the Kaiser verdict was up at the First Circuit, and the, the uh, denial of class certification was up and heard by the same p- panel. And Justice Souter uh, had retired, but he was sitting on yeah. that panel. Um, and the First Circuit uh, re- reversed the district court. Um, and sent the case back down. And the verdict, uh, the First Circuit upheld it. Uh, Pfizer, of course, uh, uh, filed for cert with the Supreme Court on both cases, which the Supreme Court uh, denied. And with regard to the class, we were back in front of Judge Saris. At some point, Judge Saris made the remark Mr. Green, uh, uh, you and I are going to grow old together <laughs> <laughs> because the the Franklin case was about eight years, and then this case went on for, um, I think it was from 2004 to 2014. So it was, it was 18 years. So experience. it was almost yeah. 18 years. <laughs> wow. We were before Judge Sarris uh, with, with Norton, but she was, she was a terrific judge. Um, uh, and the I can remember the defense attorneys at, at the first hearing we had when we came back from the First Circuit, started to make the argument uh, against class certification. <laughs> and the court said, no, <laughs> don't you understand? <laughs> you, know, you lost. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and we had a couple of mediation sessions after that, and we were able to settle the class case uh, for $325 million. So,
1: well, Why do you think there's not more Companion civil Rico cases after these big pharma cases are settling on the Ketam site.
0: I think there was another case involving Norantin, another sh- shareholder case that was mm-hmm. brought, as I, as I recall, um, and I think the theory on that one was that Pfizer knew um, all this off-label marketing had gone on, not just for Norantin but for other drugs. Yeah, and. Uh, so I, I know of that case. I I don't know, with with regard to these other cases, um, I don't know what the evidence was like in, in those cases. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of them, I, I believe, the government intervened and settled, um, of these um, these cases that total fourteen billion. Mm-hmm. You know, we were able to get discovery in the case. Uh, that's because we conducted the discovery. But yeah. when the government's investigating, and if they settle it, um, they're not going to be disseminating the documents typically. You know, mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. a press release that's issued. Uh, in our case, you know, the evidence got out. There was a lot of press written about the Franklin case. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, uh a lot of the documents were in the open and filed uh, in court you know attached to different pleadings there's a lot of incriminating evidence mm. in in the class case you know we served we, we had the benefit of the the knowledge from the franklin case uh, right. mm-hmm. but we went and did more discovery of the uh, the marketing agencies mm. um that worked for Pfizer. And we subpoenaed documents from them, and we took depositions uh, from some of these companies. Uh, and you'd see a representative of a marketing company sitting on a committee with uh, Pfizer employees mm-hmm. discussing marketing strategies. And there would be um, uh, minutes of these meetings. So there's, there's just a wealth of, of documentation. And in, in the class case, um, advisor's counsel tried to keep this uh, information confidential, uh, stamped every document confidential, even though they really didn't qualify yeah. for trade secret or other documents that were entitled to protection. They were just stale commercial documents. And uh, I wanted to disseminate them. Uh, and we had a hearing about this. And I said to Judge Saris, that um, I thought the public had a right to know that Mm -hmm. this is is an issue that uh, uh, there should be public interest in. And she agreed with me. Mm -hmm. And as part of this uh, fight over the documents, there was a motion for intervention filed by the, I'll call them the media. Mm -hmm. But it was, as I recall, the Wall Street Journal, I think the New York Times. Uh, I think I believe the Boston Globe, in one, one of the uh, major networks, um, and we, we had a hearing. They were, they were all represented by the same firm, and what the, to cut to the chase, the, the court ordered Pfizer to uh, redesignate the documents. Um, and she said, "If you stamp something confidential, It better be confidential. And then she turned to me and said, "You know, uh, if you want to challenge something, because you think it and can demonstrate to me it's not confidential, uh, then uh, attorneys' fees under Rule 11 uh, would would be applicable." Wow. So there there were 50 or more boxes, and she ordered uh, Pfizer to redesignate them within two weeks. Uh, so there were millions and yes. millions of pages of, of, of documents. And, uh, and We got a new set of, uh, of documents, and as I sit here today, I don't recall any of them being stamped confidential.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so this time is interesting. I'm, I'm trying to keep the dates straight. So all the way up to 2018, now you're still in Narotten back from 96 to 2018. But in 2012, you received a phone call about a local pharmaceutical uh, yeah. company.
0: So, um, the, the call I received was uh, from an employee at Biogen. And uh, he, he was concerned about conduct there. And he had made complaints internally to compliance to try to get them um, to stop the practice. And the practice, of course, was paying kickbacks in, in the form of. Uh, consultant meeting payments or speaker bureau payments, so payments to physicians to serve as consultants or to serve in the company's uh, speaker bureau. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he was uncertain that he wanted to file a, a false climax case. But he wanted the practice to stop, and the company wasn't stopping it. So he wanted to disclose the, 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 the conduct to the government. So it took some time, yeah. um, but eventually he came around to uh, agreeing to fa- file a case. So we filed the Franklin case, I think it was in 2012. Um, I don't know if you've done. If if you've looked at it, but I think it was filed in 2012. And uh, and we had a couple meetings with the government, um, both locally and and, uh, in uh, DC. um, And he had very good evidence uh, about marketing tactics Mm -hmm. that were designed. They were were, uh, retaining hundreds of doctors as consultants Mm -hmm. to get the advice that they didn't need They already had on on the same topic. So they would go around to many cities across the country and make presentations, the same agenda. Mm -hmm. And they tried to justify it by saying they needed to um, learn whether there were regional differences, you know, from differences from South Chicago to North Chicago. (laughs) They really did that, they they held it two different cities. There's miles apart there, yes, yes. and they had, a, they had a protocol they filed, uh, followed within the company. Um, and they had, they had to fill out a, a request for called a needs assessment that they really needed this advice. Uh, it, of course, the whole thing was just a charade, but they would yeah. go to compliance. Now, compliance would write comments on these forms saying, do you really need these number of meetings? Do you really need these mm. number of consultants? Do you really need these number of uh, speakers? Yeah. But th- those co- comments were ignored because commercial controlled, um, controlled compliance compliance mm-hmm. was under commercial. They were a compliant yeah. department, not a compliance. Yes, they department. were. Yeah. and mm-hmm. and it was uh, it's what I called we called compliance theater. Yeah. They they had a lot of things set up, but there was no teeth for the enforcement of it. In commercial, could do whatever they wanted, and they did do it. Uh, again, you know, once we survived a motion to dismiss, the, the, the government declined mm-hmm, after mm-hmm. investigating for for a number of years, yeah. and uh, I think it was declined in 2015. And then we got we faced a couple motions to dismiss, survived them both, got a very good opinion from Judge Talwani. Uh, uh, on the motion to dismiss uh, and re- regarding causation and, and proving the what the, the proving intent and whether we had to prove um, what what the 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 purpose of of the payment wa- was did we have to prove but for causation yes. and uh, and and she found we didn't and if 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 a single purpose, if just one purpose, uh, was to influence prescription writing, then it could be a uh, violation of the anti kickback statute. And then during the course of discovery, we got reams of documents, and good documents, and a lot more than David had. Mm-hmm. And we. Uh, developed a team of experts. I I think we had seven different experts from across the country, all top-notch, from different disciplines. Um, And so we had great expert reports. Biogen had five experts. And I've said it before, um, I think we really had the better team of experts. But Mm. we were preparing the case uh, for trial. I I think they were trying to hold us to 15 depositions. We said we needed a greater number than that. And then Judge Tawani asked uh, us to provide just a little summary of the depositions we needed in excess of 15. And, and my memory is she gave us the 28 we were looking for, uh, but also allowed us to do some 30 B6 um, depots of some of the vendors that work for Biogen. Uh, marketing vendors. And so I think the the total number of depositions in, in the case uh, it exceeded, I, I'm not remembering, so a lot, there was a, a lot, lot of depositions yeah. in, in the case. Uh, I, I don't want to state the wrong number, but there yeah. were a lot. And uh, there were a number of different firms that were defending Biogen over this period of time. Mm. Ropes and Gray uh, was, was present, and Carvath, and uh, Skadden, and, and I dealt mostly with. At some point, Scadden came in and and uh, worked with Rhodes and Gray. But Scadden was um, main defense counsel, and they they were uh, they were very professional in terms of working together. And we tried to reduce uh, the number of uh, motions that we brought before the court mm-hmm. and and resolve things. And so we put. Um, Starting at one point when Kravath came in, mm-hmm. uh, we we had very few. Um, when we needed Judge Tawani's help to resolve something, we went there. But it didn't happen that often. Mm. So I just assumed that this case would be tried. And yeah. I wanted to try it. I was excited about it. Um, then in the fall of uh, 20. 22, mm-hmm. we had a conference with the judge and she gave us, maybe it's 21, she gave us the trial date uh, for July uh, 2022. Um, and we got a call, I think it was in December, uh, from Cravath that they were not going to move for summary judgment, uh, hmm. which was kind of a surprise yeah. in, yes. in a case like this. Um, and. Uh, but we had our own affirmative motion for summary judgment we filed. Uh, and then we went in, in early 2022, from January, you know, probably through May in, into June, there's a lot of uh, motion practice, motion, Daubert motions, motions in Lemon A, uh, culminating with uh, some decisions by Judge Telwani that were uh, we we thought we did came out very well with mm-hmm. what we're gonna be able to do. Uh, in, during this process, uh, Pravath called and asked if we would be interested, uh, asked me if we'd be interested in, in going to mediation. And so we had two tracks going the mediation track mm-hmm. and the, the trial prep uh, track. And it, it really went right up until into July when we had our third day of mediation. And as I recall, it was a day after a hearing before Judge Tawani, where she disclosed, you know, some of her final rulings that we felt very good about. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was at that, the the very next day, we were able to settle a case. Uh,
1: Was this, uh, I know at some point, the Department of Justice filed a statement of interest backing your theory of, you know, the kickback just has to be one of the the purposes yep. you know of paying the kickback um how important was that statement of interest
0: you know, you always welcome a statement of interest from the government yeah and uh there, there was uh, there's some pretty good law out there in other circuits mm-hmm. uh, that that followed that you know um, if you can show one purpose um, at at least at the time uh, le- leading up to uh, you know the settlement of our case so it, it was helpful to get that get that statement. I, I think in looking back at it, and this is me speculating a little bit on their decision not to file summary judgment, but uh, we had gotten a favorable decision from Judge Tawani on the motion to dismiss. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's pretty clear from the state of the record, uh, everything that had been developed, that they weren't going to get out on summary judgment. Yep. And, but they would risk another opinion uh, now with a factual record there, and I—that's what I think. They just—they yeah. uh, weren't going to do that.
1: So The uh, allegations are fascinating here. By the way, I enjoyed tracking this on Pacer. Uh, all the entries, <laughs> yeah. hundreds and hundreds of entries. Yeah, yeah, right. um, you know, Biogen had three MS drugs. There was a competitor coming on the market, provided by uh, mar- marketed by Novartis, and there was this concern. Uh, and addressed the complaints that the doctors were gonna move over to Novartis' drug and the Biogen was gonna take a big financial hit. And the allegations were, we have to make sure these prescribers feel loved. And let's make sure they're, they're on the Speakers Bureau and the consulting programs and, and that they're uh, flying out to California to play golf and maybe get consulted. Um, you said that you were somewhat disappointed that this didn't go to trial. Um, were you ready for trial? You were six days out when this case started. We were ready for trial. Yeah.
0: Um, we had, uh, you know, submitted our jury instructions, uh, uh, Biogen had. We had objections to theirs. Um, they had objections to ours. We were designating deposition testimony. Um, they listed the witnesses they would uh, produce so that there, there were... Uh, Fewer transcripts that needed designation, uh, you know, jury slip. Er- 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 everything was prepared, and uh, I fully expected it was going to go to trial. Yeah. Um, I mentioned we had three days of mediation. I-, I wasn't sure. I didn't know why we needed three. I thought we could we could try to do it in a phone call, uh, or 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 a mediation, yeah. um, but. They wanted to, so we had to. And we, we didn't make that much progress. Um, and then the third mediation session got up, uh, set, and uh, there, was, there was a lot of movement there. Mm. So was I disappointed? Uh, th- there's always risk in, yes. in a jury trial, right. um, no, no matter um, how strong the cases. Uh, and that, that's risk for both sides, you know, mm-hmm. for for the relator, for the government, uh, and, and for BioGem. Mm-hmm. In, in a case like this, um, our our damages uh, singles uh, were, as I recall were about 600 million. So 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 doubled your, your, your over over a billion. Mm-hmm. Um, that was for a 6 month taint period. Mm -hmm. We had another damage model for a 12-month taint period. So meaning, the doctor gets paid a kickback, we're going to say that all the scripts for 12 months following the kickback are tainted. Mm -hmm. Um, And and the the 12-month model, as I recall, was a 1.1 billion uh, damages. So that doubled or trebled going to trial. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's substantial. But on top of that, the statutory penalties, because there were yes. a lot of claims. Yeah. So, for a publicly traded company um, like Biogen, mm-hmm. there's real risk here, mm-hmm. um, and you know there, there is for the for the relator. I mean, Mike Baduniac, uh, uh made some tough decisions along the way yeah. to keep this case going. Um, he he wanted to and. Uh, uh, but $900 million is, is a lot of money. Um, mm-hmm. And when it got to that point, uh, there, there's a risk. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I thought that was an acceptable number, and I recommended it to Mike. He agreed, mm-hmm. and uh, we were able to settle it.
1: So I've gotten to know Mike uh, over the last few months. Uh, what a remarkable person. Yeah, he, uh, he's a good guy. Yeah, you know, he'd mention yeah. Uh, publicly and, and to me that you know he hadn't told, did tell his wife for a few years, and didn't tell his sons until really t- right till the end. I'm always reminded when I talk to people that, you know, whenever people file these cases and they're under seal, the only people they oftentimes talk to are their lawyers. And you have to play the role of counselor, not just their attorney, but you're counseling them through mm-hmm. this difficult time. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? That role of a Keytown attorney counseling their client through the SEAL period and all the uh, stress of that. And then on top of that, in this case of going to trial and, and Mike's name being out there.
0: Yeah, well Mike had um, at some point, uh, maybe it was a couple years after the case was filed, uh, as I recall, he, he left Biogen and went to work for another pharmaceutical company. Yeah. And when the case came out from under SEAL, uh, just after it came out, he was confronted by his supervisor at that company mm-hmm. um, who had the case on his laptop and, and turned it around and showed it to Mike and said, what, what's that about? And that was a pretty uncomfortable time for Mike. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, he, he, he wasn't terminated. He remained at that company, but he was isolated and uh, he was told that they don't trust him uh, and so, he saw his opportunity for advancement ended uh, once it became public. Uh, and there's a lot of uncertainty in these types of cases. Uh, and, and you counsel your clients that uh, you can't guarantee them a result. You can't guarantee them we're going to be successful. Um, it's, it's even difficult to try to put odds on it. Um, but what I did say to Mike and what I say to clients, is is the ultimate decision in a case is the client's decision. Mm. Um, I I ask that the client listen to advice, but ultimately the client is going to make the decision. Mike was very good uh, all the way along about listening to advice and sticking with the case, uh, especially you know in the last six months when things were really ramping up. Mm. The trial was inevitable. Um, what was our feeling mm-hmm. and uh, uh and then, through the three mediation sessions, which you know spanned about a six week period, mm-hmm. and you know there's substantial money on the table um you know opening offer and closing offer after first day uh and second day as well, mm-hmm. but Mike listened to to my advice and uh I just I felt we we could get to a a much better number, which we ultimately did, Um, and and he he was relieved (laughs) the third day that uh, that the case was resolved and he could put it behind him, and there was no longer any any risk or. The, the pressure of the case. Um. It, it's been
1: publicly reported that Mike wore a wire for the FBI and uh, had several discussions with people higher up in Biogen and the evidence that was brought to the government. But even then, the government declined. What was Mike's thinking at that point about, I still want to go forward, what, what were some of the thoughts
0: about that? Well, Mike thought that um, with regard to the recordings, that there was some information on those tapes that was supported, uh, what he was saying. We thought as well. Um, and, you know, some disappointment uh, initially when the, the government didn't come in. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we discovered more evidence uh, during the course of discovery with good documents. Um, you know, which we would, uh, we would share information with the government. Uh, I mean, there's, there's no secret that you want the government to intervene in a case because then it's the government's resources. Um, but, you know, I, I, I've learned that, that that doesn't always happen and, and maybe it only happens in, in 20% of cases mm-hmm. or so. So when, when you take these cases, uh, you got to be committed to seeing it through. Um, you, you can't take a case. I don't believe you should take a case and try to throw something against the wall, see if it'll stick, um, see if the government will bite. Because you're going to be disappointed. You're, you're going to be disappointed most of the time. So, and, I, and I think our, our bar is very good at this, mm-hmm. vetting the cases. Uh, when, when you see problems in the cases, explaining it to the client, why you don't think it's viable. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes you file a case, you think it's viable, but the government's investigation uh, reveals something that the government will share with you mm-hmm. about why they don't think it's viable, why they don't want to intervene. And and when that happens, if they've demonstrated it's not a viable case, and you, you agree with it, mm-hmm. then uh, our practice is to explain that to the clients because uh, it, it well, first of all, you don't want to pursue a, a, a case that's just not going to be successful. Yeah. But it's not fair to the to the relator or the client mm-hmm. to put them through a, a, a decline case if you're if you're if you're pretty certain it's not going to be successful. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know the the Norton case, the Biogen case. Um, those were cases that we, we felt very good about, mm. uh, just based on the initial um, the initial set of documents the client brought in, in, in each case. And then once you get into discovery, mm. uh, a lot more good documents.
1: Uh. Were you surprised the government didn't come in, re-intervene in uh, the Biogen case later after you, know, you uncovered a lot of things during depositions? Did you think they'd come back and intervene at some point?
0: Um, I, I don't think I did. I yeah. mean, you, you 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 keep them informed yeah. uh, as you're required to do, but I, I didn't think they would. You know, the, the I I, me- I mentioned that the government has unlimited resources. Well, <laughs> certainly compared to me, they have unlimited certainly. resources. Mm-hmm. But these um, uh, U.S. attorneys' offices and the departments they handle this type of work, the False Claim Act work. Uh, they they are handling a lot of cases mm-hmm. and uh you know they, they've select the cases they want to pursue, but they they're very busy. Um and I I think when when they don't take a case uh and y- you believe in it, just go forward with it. The yeah. Good good things are gonna happen if if you have the facts. Yeah. if you have those initial facts that your, your client has has brought to you. There's going to be more once you get into the documents. There's yeah. going to be a lot more, a lot more proof of the, of the wrongdoing. Um, so it, with regard to Bajan, it didn't surprise me. me. Um, and I didn't think, uh, I mean, once we get our trial date, uh, yeah. I, I, I knew we were going to be trying the case. That's the way I felt. Uh,
1: I had plans to come up with the opening statement, so I was looking forward to that. <laughs> so, twenty nine point six three percent was the related share on, on nine hundred million dollars, the largest whistleblower reward uh, in any program until last week. Uh, SEC paid two hundred seventy four million last week on a on a on a whistleblower tip in the SEC. Twenty nine point six three percent. I don't know what else you could have done. I think you maybe. They shortchanged you. Maybe you should have gotten 30, yeah. 30%. Um, how was that day whenever you found out you know, this case is settling, the government's going to recognize the time, money, and resources that you and your client put into it and reward you 29.63%?
0: The settlement day, uh, when we, after the third day of mediation, we had a term sheet that we signed, and uh, I emailed it to, to DOJ. Um, to the local U.S. Attorney's office, mm-hmm. and then to uh, Colin Huntley, who had been uh, working with me on the case over the years, uh, and there was a lot of satisfaction. I talked to Colin several times that day, um, yeah. and th- there was a lot of sa- satisfaction then. Then, of course, you come to a later share, and now you're, <laughs> you're uh, trying to you're trying to get that thirty percent. But we got pretty close pretty to close. it, <laughs> and. Uh, uh, Mike felt pretty good.
1: So Mike said that uh, whistleblowers are an anomaly. That's you know it's rare to be the person who's swimming upstream, and that's so true, right? And, and you think about Neurontin cage, you think about Biogen, you think about any of those cases that settle off probably yeah. off-label marketing, massive pharmaceutical manufacturers, and you'll see one, maybe two or three, were later step forward out of hundreds of people that recognized it. Why is that? Why are so few people stepping forward in these cases?
0: Um, I think some are, well, some are concerned about their job. Mm -hmm. And it's a livelihood. They have a family. Mm -hmm. Um, They're they're concerned about losing their job. They're concerned about being blackballed by the industry. And um, there's there's no guarantee. Uh, It's not a sure thing that they're going to have a successful case that's going to end up with a large reward, and they're going to get 29.6% of it. Yeah. I, in, in fact, I, I think it was about $266 million uh, reward uh, to David. Uh, you know, as, as you pointed out, at the, at the time, um, that was the highest for any single relator mm-hmm. um, in any government program. And I think the largest settlement uh, in any non-intervened case. Right. Uh, and so that's that's pretty w- rare in the 150-year history of the statute. Uh, so I, I think a lot of them, and we've had a lot, a lot of people that have contacted us, and they they have. Really good evidence of false claims mm-hmm. in all different types of industry, not just uh, okay. healthcare. Mm-hmm. And this is this is what comes up. That this is a job. I have kids. Yes. Um, I I am on a certain career path. Mm-hmm. And if we're not successful, um, what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. And and for that reason, that's one of the reasons I think that. Um, there aren't more people that come forward. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and if you think of uh, Mike beduniak for a moment, or e- even David Franklin, David Franklin was almost eight years. You know, mm-hmm. Mike, Mike beduniak is you know, 10 years, it's actually more than 10 years, because mm-hmm. it was a while before he agreed to file, file the complaint. Um, and a lot of uncertainty uh, during those time periods for for each of those clients uh, so it's a it's a rare uh, person that mm. is going to have the courage to come forward uh, and in each of those instances, they felt what the companies were doing were were wrong and mm. it shouldn't be um, it shouldn't continue mm. and 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 most re- recently, you know, the, the the Biogen case, Mike tried to fix it internally. Yes. Um, and he was ignored. Um, he he was ignored because commercial, as I said before, uh, controlled everything. Controlled compliance, controlled legal. Um, so, but there... There's still people out there that will come forward, e- even in the future. And uh, there's a lot of good that's not, not just the reward. I mean, that's great, but there's a lot of good um, that's accomplished here. And now with regard to Biogen, you know, there, there have been a couple big settlements in the last few years on mm-hmm. kickback cases. Yes. And, uh, and, and there had been prior to this, but Biogen didn't change its conduct, right. you know. Mm-hmm. And I think Novartis settled the year uh, before uh, Biogen for $650 million Mm -hmm. uh, and and then Biogen. And so that's a message being sent to the industry about these tactics, the consultant meetings and and the speakers bureau. I mean, when you really think about it, you take some of these companies. If they need to get a consultant's advice, they put it out for bid. right? And they'll, they'll go to three different vendors and get a price, you know um, when they, When they're holding a, uh, a meeting you know at, at a resort for consultants, they, they're negotiating over the price of of the room and trying to get it down. Right, um, right. But when they uh, retain a vendor to set fair market value, an hourly rate for their consultants, they're, they're, they're trying to get it up as high as they can. So, commercial will be happy. Mm. Um, that's what we saw happening in the Biogen case. So there's a lot of good evidence that you, you, you develop in these cases when, you, when you, you get the evidence from the vendors they're using, the marketing firms they use, and then of course the company's internal documents.
1: So some of the narrative that we've heard from different places, including the Justice Department from time to time, is that decline cases or non intervene cases, that's a lot of time, money, and resources to monitor these cases. But the reality is, you know, when we see things like Biogen case or the rotten case that establishes case law that lights a path that then leads to $14 billion recovered or in mm-hmm. Biogen, you know, lets the world know that kickbacks in pharmaceuticals are still existing and mm-hmm. happening on a large mm-hmm. scale, I think the False Names Act's working, right? It's supplementing the limited resources of the government and establishing good case law. What are
0: your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I, I I think you have that right, um, and the government can't take every case. Um, and the, as I've said to you before, there there are a lot of members of our bar that are very very good lawyers and know this area, and you know work as uh, in partnership, you know, with DOJ uh, on these decline cases. And so there's that group of of attorneys that. Uh, prosecute those cases. And I, when you have a firm that's prosecuting the case that's experienced and they know what they're doing, I'm not sure how much supervision um, is required there. Uh, and as you've just pointed out, when you set a precedent um, in one of these cases, you know, as we have, then look what follows. And. Mm-hmm. Maybe what follows are, 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 you know, a number of settlements, and maybe there are intervene cases. But still, if the precedent is set, as you, as you say, the mm-hmm. the engine is, you know, the the train will follow. Um,
1: so I I like DOJ's press release in your bio Not often do they single out the whistleblower, but they did here, mm-hmm. and they they singled out uh, you and stating that we want to thank your regulator for uncovering this behavior and bringing it to light. This matter is an important example, of the vital role that whistleblowers and their attorneys can play in protecting our nation's public healthcare programs. And out of main justice, they said that we later diligently pursued this matter on behalf of the United States for over seven years. The settlement announced today underscores the critical role that whistleblowers play in complementing the United States' use of the False Claims Act to combat fraud affecting federal healthcare programs a recognition of the role that regulators play and their attorneys play in moving forward post-declination of these cases. So last year was the first year in which non-intervening cases, settlement recoveries in non-intervening cases outpaced intervening cases. Has our bar matured? Is there a a more professional bar on the related side? Are we doing a better job than we did 30 years ago in bringing these
0: cases? Well, I remember after the um, rotten settled, uh, Jim Mormon called me uh, and, and came to Boston, and we we had coffee. And I didn't know that much. At some point, I got introduced to to, to uh, taxpayers against fraud. But if I think of the early days, um, you know, let's say when I say early days, not. The early 90s when mm-hmm. i started doing this work but when i became involved mm-hmm. i'd say from that that point of time just say around 2004 mm-hmm. you know up to this, uh, this period of time you know 19 years i've seen uh i think maturity mm-hmm. uh in in you know in different firms around the country there there's there's a lot more uh yeah. firms uh, and there are, as I said, there are a lot of good firms that do good work mm-hmm. and that pair up with, with other firms and co-prosecute cases. Uh, you know, if you have a, de- a decline case, um, there, they can be a lot of effort. And if, yeah. it's, if, it's, if it's a case like Franklin or like Biogen, you know, you, you really need a team. Uh, of lawyers. Now may, maybe you have them internally, but uh, uh, there's there are a lot of good guys uh, around the country, good, good lawyers around the country that um, can handle it, these cases.
1: So I'm, I'm thinking about the future of our practice area and, and your sons and your firm. Now yeah. the legacy continues. Yeah. Um, where are we headed?
0: Um, anywhere and everywhere, the government spends money, uh, yeah. you know, for the for the false climate case. Of course, now we have IRS whistleblower, we have SEC whistleblower, we have—you're uh, going to have to help me with it, but— uh, CTF, CFTC. Yeah, yep. right. uh, <laughs> Well, I was going to say TAF, okay. yeah. the, the, yeah. the yep. new— uh, uh-huh. uh, so I you know anywhere the government spends money uh, there's the potential for fraud uh, there There are some cases we have under seal that have some interesting theories <laughs> uh, so uh, i i just think it's a you know 1986 when they strengthened the uh the the statute. Um, and making tweaks along the way to uh, correct certain court decisions has, has just made, made the, the remedies here uh, and the incentives here stro- stronger. Uh, so I, I think, uh, <laughs> I, I don't think there's ever going to be an end to fraud. Mm. Uh, I think some of the practices, off label marketing, Maybe kickbacks, pharma kickbacks. Uh, some of that will will change. But uh, talking about the healthcare industry for a moment, their, their customers are the the you know the hospitals, uh, the doctors, mm-hmm. um, and so the government healthcare programs are going to be involved. And if if you're trying to develop business. Let's say in, in non-healthcare programs. Well, you you take people out and you wine them and dine them, mm-hmm. or uh, you know you shower them with with tickets. But you can't do that when you're dealing with healthcare and mm-hmm. it involves government uh, healthcare programs. So, uh, I I still think in the in the healthcare industry field, that, um, and we've seen this with device um, cases. There, there's fraud um and, and there there are kickbacks uh, and they're they're still going on um, and there 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 are whole other diff- industries too where there there are where the money where the government spends money there, there is fraud uh there are people that are trying to maximize their profits by not following um rules and regulations uh in, in, in many industries. Because it's expensive to do so, it cuts into the bottom line. Um, so uh, I think there's a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm. Um. So,
1: Tom, you're, uh, you're joining our senior leadership on the President's Council. Oh. <laughs> uh, you made a generous donation to our organization uh, of a million dollars to make, make sure this organization continues going forward. There's some potential whistleblower out there right now watching this program. They're probably where Mike was in 2010, 2011, 2012. And they're thinking about, you know, is this the right path for me? Um, What do you say to that person?
0: Well, I, I say obviously it's a personal decision and you've got to weigh the pros and cons and you've got to seek some advice or some counsel about what those pros and cons are. Mm. Uh, you, you have some idea of them, but you, you don't know of the, the pitfalls o- along the way during the course of the litigation, or on the other hand, the, the, the way things, facts might break uh, in, in your favor. So I, I think, you have to consider your your family. you have to consider your career yeah. you You have to think about these things and only you can make that decision mm-hmm. um, i I would say uh can you correct it internally mm-hmm. um, and I've had that discussion with clients uh sometimes. They have been able to correct things internally. The company actually listens and stops the practice. Uh, other times the company retaliates, um, and mm-hmm. if it's just such a profitable practice, um, the the uh, temptation is not not to end the practice, but to keep the gravy train running mm-hmm. uh, so. But that's a a decision that each relator has to make. And as as you pointed out, an anomaly, you said, uh, a whistleblower is an anomaly. Um, Some of them just know the conduct is wrong. And if not me, who Mm. is going to turn this around? You know, especially if they've tried to correct the situation internally and they're being ignored.
1: Uh, I think of, uh, you know, with... I always tell people that we work with these should have been employees of the month. You think of Mike going to compliance, being you know, like, "Look, at what we're doing yeah. here is wrong," and yeah. and and you know, instead of listening, they do other things. Uh, so I, I think you know these are these should have been employees of the month. Mike definitely should yeah. have been the employee of the month. Yeah. Right?
0: You know, um, there there's a. Culture at the, these companies that they they think and they say, and we've heard it through clients, that their competitors are engaged in uh, yes. in, in the, these practices. You know, let's say consult meetings or speaker bureau. I mean, we we have had evidence that the physicians are saying to the sales rep that your competitor drug company Absolutely. B yes. As this is what they paid me uh, in this past year in in consultant fees, you know. Uh, I'm even allowed to invite uh, a nurse from my office Mm -hmm. to get a consultant fee at at a meeting. And so the companies feel that they have to keep up with their competitors. Uh, And perhaps uh, with cases like Novartis, like Biogen, Maybe it's going to take another few uh, a few hits, major hits, and th- this practice of paying consultants when you don't need them, mm-hmm. you don't collect the advice, you don't use the advice um, maybe these practices will stop um.
1: I've always thought you know, it's the, the kickback tango It takes two to to tango and if if the justice department took a more aggressive stance going after prescribers who were receiving the blatant kickbacks and publicize how they're taking an active stance. Uh, you know, in Biogen, there's none of the doctors ended up uh, as far as I know, definitely didn't serve prison time or settle false claim back cases, that that might be one way to reduce these blatant kickbacks, right? Yeah,
0: you, you make a good point there. Um, and I, I, I agree with that. You, you don't see it very often. Um, so it's the doctors, uh, if, if, the government targeted them, and they've done this sometimes in, yeah. in, in lab testing, urine lab testing, At a case where they, they went after some of the doctors, went after the lab ta- testing company, but some of the doctors. But similarly, if DOJ went after some of the higher level company employees, um, I think that would set an example. And if the conduct is bad enough and criminal, Mm -hmm. and they went after them criminally, that might uh, really uh, cause a change um, here. Because if you thought you could be indicted, I, th- I think you you might feel very differently uh, about running some of these programs or being so aggressive or crossing the line, uh, and I I, th- I think the Department of Justice has probably done that in a, in a couple of cases, mm-hmm. uh, but if they did a little bit more of it, that would send a strong message, um, I think, and you, you you might stop a lot of this. Bad conduct.
1: So, Tom, earlier uh, we started off talking about how, you know, just a couple years out of the DA's office or uh, with the DA's office, you hang a shingle in Boston. <laughs> yeah. As a plaintiff's lawyer, yeah. um, that kind of, I don't know if it's entrepreneurial spirit or just like, you know, I'm just going to see, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bank on myself and say that, you know, I can move forward and be successful in this practice. It seems to be a thread through. Your whole career, you know. When I think about moving forward without the government against some of the largest pharmaceutical giants in the world, what drives you?
0: Well, if you talk about the plaintiff cases, which you know is how how I started off, um, I, I would say I I wanted to fight for the little guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I liked Robin Hood, you know. Yeah. I I liked. Uh, yeah that that type of story i I did not wanna be representing a company um and so when I started off uh that's what i did my my practice was representing plaintiffs not not hourly work and uh, I got a lot of satisfaction uh in in helping individuals and families and uh, uh that I never had problems sleeping at night. I, I felt good. I mean, th- there was a lot of pressure. Uh, there was a lot of risk, but uh, maybe it's my competitive spirit uh, that I, I, I liked the challenge. Um, and then the false climax cases came along, uh, and I. I I had no fear and have no fear about going into a courtroom. I feel very comfortable there. It's, it's what I enjoy. And so there's not that type of pressure on me. it's an enjoyment to try a case, especially a big case. Um, and, you know, if you take one of these cases, um, as I said before, I hope the government will intervene or you're not committed to see it through. Yeah. Or you think you're only going to see it through and you hope that they're going to offer some money and there'll be some type of settlement. That's a disservice to your client, but you're you're never going to get the the result the case may um, deserve. Mm -hmm. And you got to take the case and be prepared for declination and be excited about the challenge Mm -hmm. uh, in the development of the case, in the discovery of the facts. The team of experts, you know, all the pre-trial work. Mm -hmm. Uh, If if you enjoy that, I mean, it's it's a lot of work. You know, I think, uh, you know, we put in over thirty thousand hours uh, on the biogen case, and uh, I think it was about two point three million in out-of-pocket expenses. But um, I I didn't feel any pressure because of the time or because of the out-of-pocket expenses. I was committed to the case. And I, I did not think we were going to be successful. I, I, thought, uh, I thought it was going to be a jury verdict. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think it's the, the work is interesting. I like the challenge. It's, it's a contest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, um, I'm competitive. I, I don't want to lose. I, I, I don't have all the answers, by far. But there are experts out there that can help educate you and uh, you get a good team of um, attorneys together that are, are enjoy the challenge, then um, you're in good, good, good shape.
1: So I talked to a lot of people, told them that I'm coming up here to interview you. Uh, a lot of our young lawyers uh, had many suggestions for things I should ask. Um, what, do you, what are your recommendations to new lawyers that are getting involved in say I know your son's in your, your firm, uh, there's other uh, our young lawyers' division now makes up a quarter of our membership. Oh, is that uh, right? Yeah, so yeah. it's a growing area. Yeah. What do you say to those
0: people? There's no easy way. Um, and there's, there's not a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. You shouldn't look at it that way. I, I would take, take on each client, each client's case, and do the absolute best job you, you can in that case. You've got to do all the legal research. If you need experts, you got to get all the right experts. The young lawyers, I did this. You, you should be talking to more experienced lawyers to bounce ideas off them or get some advice. And um, I, I think really legal research is is so important, making sure that you, you, you know the law in, in, the, in the areas um, that are applicable to the case um, you really can leave no stone unturned that that was my approach yeah, yeah. Um, you wanted to be fully prepared for whatever would be thrown at you now maybe you're not always maybe something surprises you mm-hmm. but you you got to use your best efforts to get get prepared um, and i I am not a procrastinator um, and I don't I don't want to leave things to the end. Yes. So you've you got to plan your case. You've got to start working on your opening and closing. Um, I had mine done in the Biogen case. Yeah. Uh, you've you got to be ready to go, because you, you can't wait till the 11th hour. Um, that's too much pressure, and uh, mm-hmm. you, you don't need that. So that's some advice to the young lawyers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I would just say always. Uh, you know, um, abide by the ethics, uh, abide by follow the rules. Uh, make sure you're educated on, on the rules, local rules um, included, and uh, you'll 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 be successful. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it, it's one case at a time. It's one year at a time. Um, and don't don't let the pot of gold be your motivation. Um, That may come, but have the client's case be your motivation to get the best result you can for that client. And remember, it's the client's decision on whether to settle a case. It's your your responsibility to prepare that case, to advise the client. But never let your financial interest Mm. affect the advice you're going to give your client. Um, you don't want to ever get yourself in a position where you've expended too much on your case expenses or on your overhead, and you're letting that impact mm-hmm. your decision on whether to settle a case. And, and I've seen that mm-hmm. um, happen uh, in, in, in some cases, and uh, uh, never, never get yourself in that position. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think you 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 can en- enjoy your practice, work hard, and get a lot of satisfaction yeah. uh, out of it, and and you you will be successful. But it's a lot of hard work.
1: Well, Tom, I just want to acknowledge you. Uh, thank you for welcoming me into your uh, your beautiful home. But I want to acknowledge you for lighting a path for so many others. Um, oh, thank you, Jeff. Both <laughs> in the government and outside of the government, uh, I really appreciate the time we spent today.
0: Thanks, Jeff. Yeah.
1: So until next episode of Fraud in America, if you see something, say something. And if that doesn't work, make sure you do something.
0: If you believe
1: you have witnessed fraud against the government or fraud on the financial markets, we encourage you to visit our website at TAF.org, where you will find a directory of member attorneys who represent whistleblowers across the country. On our website, you will also find additional information about our nation's various whistleblower laws and programs and a way to donate to our organization as we step forward in spreading information about whistleblower programs. This episode was edited and produced by Rachel Brooks, and our theme song is by Connor Chaos. A big thank you to our TAF staff and researchers of James King, Emma Bass, Jackie DeMar, Kate Scanlon, Max Boldman. Fraud in America is a project of Taxpayers Against Fraud Education Fund. The opinions expressed on today's show belong solely to the guest and are not necessarily endorsed by the organization. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of Fraud in America.